You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. According to an exhaustive Washington Post analysis, nearly 300 Republican nominees, congressional and state office nominees are election deniers, people who question the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. One of the key reporters on that story joins me now, Amy Gardner, national reporter on the democracy team here at the Washington Post. Amy, welcome to First Look. Thanks, Jonathan. So your work is never done. At 6 a.m., you dropped another story, this time about (laughs) the uh, race for Nevada Secretary of State. Um, the leading candidate, the Republican nominee, is a man by the name of Jim Marchand. He's the founder of America First Secretary of State Coalition. He's apparently in a tight race for that job. Who is he? And is he one of the driving forces casting doubt on the 2020 election? Uh, he is a former uh, state lawmaker and a losing candidate for Congress in 2020. And actually, his election denialism in 2020 did not begin with uh, President Trump, former President Trump's defeat in Nevada and elsewhere, it, it began with his own defeat, and he he sued his lawsuit, like all the other Republican lawsuits in Nevada and elsewhere, failed, and he very quickly decided he was going to run for Secretary of State and founded the the Secretary of State America First Coalition that you mentioned, and has been going around the country uh, as a leader of this movement, uh, calling for hand counts for same day counts on election day, those two, by the way, are sort of deeply fundamentally incompatible, uh, for decertifying election machines, not using Dominion machines, the the company that has come under so much fire uh, based on no evidence. Uh, and uh, and he's turned it into an a incredibly tight and competitive race for Secretary of State in Nevada, an important swing state. And if I remember right in the story um, that you have out this morning, if he wins real, if he wins election, he promises to go back and uh, try to decertify the 2020 election. It's a thing that several candidates say. There's no legal avenue for doing that. That any you know uh, election law expert or constitutional expert uh, I've spoken to uh, is aware of. Uh, it's rhetoric. Uh, and it's, you know, it's very clear that it's intended to keep alive the grievance that many uh, voters in America who wanted Trump to win in 2020 uh, feel about that defeat. So let's talk about these other secretary of state races, excuse me, Arizona, Michigan and Minnesota. How are those races playing out and are they as close as it looks like the race in Nevada is? You know, it's interesting. I I almost feel like the race in Arizona, Mark Fincham is the Republican uh, nominee for Secretary of State seeking to replace Katie Hobbs, the current Democratic Secretary of State who's running against Carrie Lake for governor. And so the election denialism issue is, of course, coursing through the governor's race there, too. I almost feel like in that state, the Republicans have more of an advantage than elsewhere. Arizona is not a blue state. Of course, it went for Joe Biden in 2020, but uh, I believe you know the polls reflect that it's the most Republican of the states where you have these election deniers running for office, and so that's one where it feels uh, highly more likely than in other states for the deniers to win office. Minnesota is an interesting state because people uh, forget that it's not that unlike. Uh, the other upper Midwest states that 
Trump won in 2016 and that were very close in 2020, Wisconsin and Michigan. Uh, it, it has stayed blue, but, uh, but that demographic profile has many Democrats concerned. And I learned in reporting the Nevada story that, uh, for instance, the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State, which is you know an arm of the DNC, is spending money in, in Minnesota to, to shore up that race. And Amy, for those who don't understand why talking about a secretary of state race in a state is so important, the job of secretary of state is to do what? Well, it varies widely by state, but the vast majority of states have a secretary of state as the top election official in, in their state. Secretaries of state do other things depending on the state. They issue business licenses and other sort of miscellaneous state duties. But uh, in the states where where this office holder is is the top election official, there are you know myriad ways in which they can influence elections. They can give guidance and instructions to local election officials who, who actually run the elections in the polling locations and count the ballots. They, in some cases, have the power to certify or decline to certify election results. Uh, they, uh, in many cases, have the power to certify the machines or decertify them. I think that's actually one of the most uh, alarming possibilities in Nevada if Jim Marchant wins that race. He has said that he would immediately decertify uh, the machines that are used in that state, which would leave local officials without the legal authority to use those machines because state law requires them to use certified machines. Now, there would be legal action, certainly, and it's impossible to know what would come of that. But uh, election authorities in that state have told me that the decertification of machines is one of their biggest fears in all of this. And so the, this is a great segue to the question I was going to ask, how much of a threat uh, might it might this pose in a democracy that so many people running for office and could be making key decisions for decades to come believe not only a presidential election was stolen in this country, but run for office to get a hold of the levers of power to, <laughs> to borrow a phrase, rig the system in favor of their preferred candidates. Right. And actually, a case study of what this all might look like is playing out in Nevada right now, where there's a county outside of uh, Las Vegas, Nye County, that is hand counting its results. It is also using machines because it was not allowed to only use hand counting uh, per some state regulations. Those regulations could change under Jim Marchant, and he could promote this hand counting around the state. We, the, the count just began on Wednesday with early votes that have have been cast and um, uh, uh, mail ballots that have come in. Uh, but so far, and it is early, and I think it's important to give the process some time to see how it goes, but so far it's very painfully slow and the teams of counters are not meeting the goal that the local clerk set of you know counting 250 ballots per shift, uh, eight teams a day, you know, a whole algorithm of results goals are not being met. and. Uh, you know, uh, certified results are required to be, uh, you know, passed along to state election officials within 10 days of an election. And I think it's going to be very difficult for that county to meet that goal. And that's a county, by the way, of 53,000 people. It's not a tiny county, but it is not Las Vegas. It's not Reno. It's not Philadelphia or Detroit or Atlanta or Phoenix. And it, it's in, it's just hard to fathom what 
a hand count if it were imposed on those giant metro regions of our country in contested battlegrounds would look like. Amy, I can't let you go without asking you about the monumental project that you and your colleagues in the democracy team worked on that led to this number that we now have, nearly 300 Republican nominees being election deniers. Um, this was a, more than a year of reporting. Tell us what went into this big project. Uh, a lot of effort and an enormous team, and it was it was hard work, but also extremely gratifying to have such a big body of data to present to our readers. We started this a year ago when we launched the attack, our investigation of the January 6th insurrection on Capitol Hill, in a, as a way to measure how election denialism was still alive and well in our country. And that is exactly what we found. It's only grown since January 6, 2021. We ha are very fortunate in the Washington Post newsroom to partner on big data projects with American University. Uh, there's a journalism practicum uh, there. And so those students regularly team up with us to help us when we have really big data projects like this one, where, where we needed to scour the internet for uh, TV interviews, tweets, Facebook posts, rally videos to see what each of the Republican candidates for office were saying about the 2020 election. We were rigorous. Everything was fact-checked multiple times. Uh, and uh, we had very rigorous uh, sort of criteria for for deciding who we would identify as an election denier, someone who outright claimed the election was rigged or that Joe Biden was not the president, or who signed on to partisan uh, um, audits or lawsuits, uh, and uh, or of course people many there's a handful of candidates who attended the the rally and mm -hmm. the Capitol riot on January 6th. So of course that's an automatic yes. Uh, so it was a huge undertaking, but I think an important one to document for our readers and for the country how this election denialism is not going away right now. Absolutely important work. Amy Gardner, Washington Post national reporter on the democracy team. Thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. My pleasure, thanks. Uh, now let's go to, well, we're gonna keep the conversation going uh, with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post where we will find Washington Post Associate Editor Ruth Marcus and Washington Post columnist Hugh Hewitt. Ruth, Hugh, welcome back to First Look. Morning. Hi, Good morning. So let me first get a reaction from both of you on Amy's reporting. Hugh, I'll start with you. Given the prevalence of election denialism in the Republican Party, what is the political upside for Republicans who say correctly that the 2020 presidential election was free and fair? Well, I have to go to your premise, Jonathan. I don't think it's very prevalent. Uh, I just come back from five state tour talking with thousands of voters and dozens of candidates. Election deniers did not show up, didn't come up, not on the topic of people's minds. It's important. Uh, the work is professional. The journalism is great. It's simply not a significant factor in this election. Uh, Ruth? Uh, okay, wow. Well, um, good morning, Hugh. But I think you're um, a denier of election denialism. Ah! Um, I think, um, thank you for laughing at that, because I mean it with some affection. Um, there are two reasons that I say that, though. Um, the first is that all the public polling shows that a significant and, from my point of view, horrifying percentage of the Republican Party um, 
says that it believes that elections can't be trusted and the 2020 election was rigged, to use Jonathan's phrase from earlier. Um, and the second has to do with the reporting that Amy and the, our, our friends in the newsroom um, have done that's so important that shows the incredible prevalence of election deniers and election denialism among Republican candidates for office across the country and in, throughout the um, ranks of especially state officials and most terrifyingly secretaries of state. So I kind of challenge your denial of Jonathan's premise. Well, Ruth, let me stick with you here um, because I'm just wondering, do you think Democrats should make a stronger rebuttal on these uh, election denial claims or just let them hang out there and hope that the electorate uh, sees them um, for the conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists that they are? I think all of us, um, no matter party and no matter what our jobs need to speak up about election denialism, but um, in terms of the in immediate challenge in front of Democrats in the next few weeks before the election, the challenge is to figure out how to convince voters that their approach to the economy can be trusted despite the impact that people are feeling on their pocketbooks when they go to the supermarket or when they go to the um, to fill up their cars. Well, Hugh, this gets to the column that you wrote this week where you say um, there three facts are driving this election, and which you say is good news for Republicans. What are they? Uh, inflation, number one, the cost of living. People cannot buy food and they cannot feed their family when food prices go up 13% year over year. Gas has come down a little bit because of the strategic petroleum reserve releases, but that's viewed with a gimlet eye. In Nevada, you're just talking about Nevada, where Adam Laxalt is probably going to win the Senate race. Gas is over $6 a gallon, and people are upset about that. Number two, and I think probably the iceberg issues I wrote in the column is education, moms especially, are very upset over what happened over the past two years. Not just the ACT tests, which were a disaster, but the learning loss in math and reading. So extraordinary. It's chronicled in the Post this week and uh, very, very much on the minds of parents. And then finally, the issue I heard a lot about from self-selected people showing up in Denver, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Columbus, is the border is open and that means fentanyl is in my town. They're not anti-immigrant. I, I really don't believe that. I think people are very, very, very sympathetic to economic migration. They're very afraid of the cartels. They're desperately afraid that fentanyl is in their community and 107,000 People died last year from fentanyl. That's an open border. Those are the three big issues. That's what's going to drive this election. Ruth, I would love to get your, your thoughts on, on uh, Hugh's column. But also in particular, do you think education is going to be that issue that pushes things over, over the line? I, I, mean, I think back to what happened in Virginia, where education rich, writ large proved to be a big factor in Glenn Youngkin's win for the governorship there. Sure. Well, I think I read Hugh's column with interest, but I think the most important uh, thing he said in uh, his last set of sentences was self-selected. Um, he is um, interviewing the converted, if you will. And so I think that the voters um, that and fans that Hugh was hearing from are not necessarily representative of the broader concerns of Republicans and Democrats and independents who make up obviously a majority of voters. If you look at, for example, the most recent Pew polling 
Uh, the biggest concerns are the economy. Second, and I really support this one, the future of democracy. Third, education. And when you, you have to go farther down the list and actually pass abortion to get to borders. And, and by the way, the fentanyl crisis is different from um, immigration across the borders. They're completely different phenomena. I think the education question is really interesting because it clearly played an important role in the Virginia governor's race. But I think voters may well understand that on the national level, uh, education is not really the province of either their senators and congressmen or of the president. The education is primarily a local and state issue. So I'm not sure I see that as the absolute galvanizing force that Hugh does. Well, let's keep talking about the economy because President Biden has been out there touting his economic message this week. Here's how he described the different approaches at a Democratic National Committee gathering. Listen. Democrats are building a better America for everyone, with an economy that grows from the bottom up and the middle out, where everyone does well. Republicans are doubling down on their mega, mega, trickle-down economics that benefits the very wealthy, failed the country before, and will fail it again if they would. Okay, so th this is for both of you, but I'll start with you, Hugh. Does that argument work? No. Uh, not only does it not work, it's not even being heard. Uh, an hour ago, I was talking to Virginia Governor Youngkin on my radio show. He's the rock star on the uh, election path. Every candidate in every state wants Glenn Youngkin. Why? Reasonable, moderate, focused on education, talking about the cost of living. And uh, rallies are always self-selected, right? People go there because they are politically motivated. What matters is what motivates the marginal voter to switch parties, or get and come out and vote or not vote. The key thing that Joe Biden uh, was caught doing this week was listening to Chuck Schumer yesterday on an open mic say Georgia is lost. Uh, and and they're, they're dismayed that Herschel Walker is gonna be the Senator from Georgia. But that's the key takeaway, not the stand up, read from the prompter at the DNC. It, what does Chuck Schumer say to the president on the tarmac when the mic is live and it's we've lost Georgia? That is, to me, uh, the, the key giveaway here. It doesn't really matter what the president says or what reporters spin or what analysts write or columnists write. What matters is what are voters feeling? And they're feeling economic pain and uncertainty about their children's future. Ruth? Um, oh, with, I'm sorry, I didn't know that that was a question. I agree. This is an unusual sentence for me, but I agree with you. Voters are motivated by pocketbook issues. They are feeling pain. That's the, you know, the incredible headwinds that the Demo that Democrats are facing in a, in a midterm election that's already full of headwinds. In other words, uh, history tells us that the incumbent party loses seats in a midterm election. In 2010, Republicans um, lost uh, 68 seats. In, tw in 2018, um, yeah, Republicans gained 68 seats. Sorry about that. In 2018, Democrats gained 41 seats. This is in the House. Um, it, I think the House will be lost by Democrats, but in part because there aren't that many seats to, that are up for grabs, the losses will be less than that. It's inflation. The president and his party may have some responsibility for that. It's largely a factor, however, out of his control. 
However, he will be blamed for it. That is the way politics works. And that's what we're going to see operating in the election next month. Uh, let's talk. We've got less than 10 minutes left. We got to talk about another big issue. Ruth, you wrote about it uh, in your column this week, warning about the possible end of affirmative action. Tell us about the case the Supreme Court will hear on Monday. Um, okay. Uh, this is a case that uh, raises the question of really the constitutional and legal future of affirmative action in higher education. There's been a very kind of narrow legal window to justify affirmative action in college and university admissions. And it is uh, not to make up for past discrimination or uh, to equalize the playing field, but to allow universities and colleges to create diverse student bodies. This is a rationale that Justice Lewis Powell set out in the mid 1970s. It was adopted by the court in 2003 as um, the, a kind of official law of the land. It was reaffirmed as recently as 2016. What has happened since then? I think we all know the answer to that question. The President Trump got the opportunity to name three conservative justices. This is a six justice majority that does not like racial preferences of any sort for any reason. Affirmative action is hanging by a thread and that thread I believe is going to be cut. We'll see the evidence of the snipping at oral argument next week and it's gonna, I'm, I, I am as, as certain as other observers that uh, Harvard and the University of North Carolina will lose when the decision is handed down next year. And the only question is whether, how badly really. And I, I think and, that's a terrible yeah, thing. And I know Hugh is going to disagree. So go, go for it, Hugh. Well, not just, not quite yet, Hugh. Not, no, no, no. Slow your roll, Hugh. Got one more question for Ruth. Like <laughs> Ruth, you, you wrote, quote, the legality of affirmative action has bedeviled the court for decades and for good reason. Explain why. Sure. I mean, look at the public polling. Um, nobody wants a situation where people are being um, helped or harmed because of the color of their skin. That feels un-American. The Equal Protection Clause guarantees um, everybody the equal protection of the laws. And you want to have um, an equal playing field. The problem is um, that the playing field does not start out equal. There are decades and centuries of discrimination, um, legalized discrimination, legalized segregation that uh, really affect where we are starting now. And if you look at the um, effect in states like California, for example, where uh, voters passed a proposition that prohibited the state universities from uh, engaging in the kind of uh, affirmative action that Harvard and the University of North Carolina engage in. And by the way, that's just taking race into account as one factor. It's not set aside, setting aside a chunk of a class uh, for people of a particular minority group. Uh, the impact is devastating. The number of um, minority enrollees in their student bodies, especially the most selective student bodies, went down enormously. And as somebody, um, who has benefited, um, I have to say, from the advantages of an elite education. I think that's devastating, not just for the colleges themselves, but 
for the ability of minorities to succeed in the the larger economy and uh, in business and industry and government going forward. It's uh, it's really a tragedy. You know, as someone who um, totally benefited from Carleton College of Minnesota taking race into account uh, when my application uh, hit the admissions office, um, you know, I wonder what would have happened if Carleton did not take a holistic approach because my test scores were terrible. Um, Q, I'm saving the last few minutes for you. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that, that this, is, is so this is a toss-up question. Oh. Q, 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 here's, wait, here's the question. Would you lament the loss of affirmative action? No, no. Ruth is absolutely right. Uh, and I want to make a large point and a small point. The large point is that uh, I've been agreeing on this. I've held this position since I first read Justice Harlan the first in Plessy v. Ferguson's dissent back in the 19th century. The Constitution is colorblind. The 14th Amendment is intended to be that. And therefore, any state action and indeed the 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibits the use of race in the awarding uh, of, of benefits or the inflicting of penalties. Small point. Uh, I took con law for the first time from the great Archibald Cox as an undergraduate in 1978. He was arguing the Bakke case then. And what he was doing all semester was working out the oral argument in front of us uh, where he was aiming at Justice Powell. I mean, everything was to try and get Justice Powell to endorse the use of race and admissions. And he got Justice Powell in 1978. Uh, it has been a long journey to the point where we're going to repudiate the Powell uh, confusion. And I don't want to do a con law class here, Ruth, probably do it better than I. The fact of the matter is that last week in the DeSantis-Chris debate, uh, Governor DeSantis quoted without attribution Chief Justice Roberts from the 2007 Seattle School District case saying the way to end discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. There is no Justice Powell on this court. Ruth, is, I want to return the, Ruth, you're right, compliment. She's 100% right. This is over. There is no Justice Powell to persuade. Even the great Cox could go up there and Archibald Cox could argue for 10 hours and he wouldn't flip one vote. Affirmative action is dead. Do I get to say something, Jonathan? Do Absolutely. Uh, okay, what I want to say is, alas, there is no Justice Powell on this court. I think colorblind is a lovely phrase and it would have been really fantastic if uh well there's two things to say about it the first is that that was not the intent of the authors of the 14th amendment they well understood that what they were doing was writing an amendment that was intended primarily to rectify and prevent discrimination against formerly enslaved people it was not to protect white people from the um, potential benefits that formerly enslaved people would have. That's number one. Number two is if Justice Harlan's uh, phrase about colorblindness had been the majority view when he wrote it, um, that would be one thing. But we had decades, decades after that of non-colorblindness and the entrenched effects of discrimination. And so to pretend that all we need to do to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop it, um, is simply naive. It's not a no word I would normally use about the Chief Justice, but he's just wrong. We learned after Brown that simply stopping discrimination was not enough to integrate schools. And we will learn that sad lesson again uh, when the Supreme Court acts.
And that concludes our con law seminar for today. <laughs> Ruth we'll Marcus. We'll reading next week. <laughs> <laughs> Ruth Marcus, Hugh Hewitt, as always, thank you both for coming to Thanks First Look. Have a good yeah. weekend. You too. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.